Good evening. Welcome to Spin Class with Michael Fragan. We are here discussing politics, and it is November 8th. Two days ago, the presidential election, once every four years, we pick a new president. We potentially pick a new Congress, although a lot of the congressional stalemate has stayed the same. And for those of you who may not be aware, for some of us, 10 days ago, it's 10 days in the dark. Hurricane Sandy ravaged many of the Jewish communities, Seagate, Long Beach, the Rockaways, the five towns. People lost their homes. People don't have power. I'm one of those. No power for 10 days. It's really amazing when you think about it that in 2012, we can't get our act together to solve a little problem like bringing the juice to individual homes and businesses. A real failure of government, in my opinion. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. We'll have a couple guests on this show. We're coming live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Spin Class. And let's get right into it. We have ended the four-year cycle with no changes. The president remains the same, a handy victory for him, 303 to 206 in the Electoral College, not even close. Pretty much the president won every swing state, every state that really he needed to win, he ended up winning. Quite an achievement for a time when there is a real crisis in the economy, there's a real crisis in government. There's a crisis abroad. There's all kinds of skepticism with regard to this president. President Obama will return for another four years because he ran a superior campaign. He had a superior message. That message was essentially, don't go back to failed policies. Move forward with his policies and don't take a chance on a guy like Mitt Romney and his running mate, Paul Ryan. If you're afraid of them, then you should vote with him. And billion dollars in spending certainly made voters very, very afraid of the Romney-Ryan ticket. So it'll be another four years of Barack Obama, and hopefully they will be more successful than his first four years. Definitely some achievements, but I think we are at a juncture in the middle of this two-term presidency that there's a lot at stake. The country faces a fiscal cliff. And what is that fiscal cliff? The fiscal cliff is the deal that allowed them to raise the debt ceiling, which, which essentially means that Congress must make automatic cuts to the budget, to defense, to the army, to all kinds of areas, to bring in government spending, to rein in the huge debt that has been amassed over the past couple of years. And we need to go ahead and solve that. Otherwise, there are going to be drastic cuts, automatic cuts to our economy, to our government's economy, to our large public economy. And just today, the Congressional Bubble. <clears throat> excuse me, the Congressional Bu Budget Office 
We released an analysis that the fiscal cliff will mean a recession and a rise in unemployment. And why are we at this such a juncture with regard to this cliff? So regard, why are we calling it such a cliff? Why are we calling it this abyss that if somehow Washington doesn't get its act together, we are going to go off the deep end? It's because for so long we've had a stalemate in Washington. It doesn't dates back not just to the beginning of this presidency, but even before. We've had a stalemate, not necessarily a political stalemate of Washington not getting things done, but we've had a unrealistic unwillingness to deal with tough fiscal structural issues. This government spends way too much. It spends more than it takes in. And that, of course, long-term, as we all know, is a recipe for disaster. So Obama faces that. He also faces an uncertain foreign policy situation. He certainly came in with flux in the Middle East and ended his first term with extreme fluctuations in the Middle East. The Arab Spring, as well as the Libya situation, as well as Iran and its pursuit of the nuclear bomb, point to some very, very significant challenges for this president. That and the continuing U.S. presence in Afghanistan, which will have to be ramped down during the second term, dealing with Pakistan, dealing with a lot of these challenges, they face the president. So you have to wonder, with all these challenges for a lack of huge success, aside from a Nobel Peace Prize, why is it that this president was reelected? And to many, it is, it is strange. It is strange. You would think parallels to 1976, when you had a similar Democratic president sitting there with huge foreign policy challenges and huge fiscal challenges at home. Jimmy Carter, he was thrown out of office in one term. The last Democratic president to be thrown out after one term. And Obama came in as somebody who was going to transcend Washington, who was going to transcend politics. And he has shown that that is not exactly the way, the style that he is going or has governed. He has essentially governed from the left, not the center. He hasn't necessarily transcended Washington. So... We will have two guests tonight. We're going to talk a little bit national, a little bit local, a little bit about the hurricane and the response. We have awaiting us former Assemblyman and Rockland County resident, Ryan, who is a political expert, political guru, one who is a Democrat but has wide range of contacts on both sides of the aisle. He knows his community. He knows the communities beyond. To get his expert opinion at this time, Ryan, let's welcome you to the show. Well, it's good to be with you, Michael. It's good to have you here, Ryan. Big week, November 8th. What do you have to say about November 6th? You know, it, it, it was uh, quite, quite an election, you know, but I think uh, you know, the lead-up to the election Seemed a lot more exciting than the than the election itself. I mean, election day was kind of a was kind of a of a dud, even though the speeches were on there late at night. 
Um, I don't think that uh, I certainly wasn't on the edge of my seat. Um, I think that the uh, outcome, um, despite the, the, the passion uh, on, on all the sides there, I, I think the outcome remained pretty consistent. And you have a changing American electorate and Americans who are really living in different political realities. And, you know, people woke up in the morning and, and they were shocked that Obama won. They couldn't imagine how that was going to happen uh, in any way of uh, affairs. And I'm sure had the opposite happened, uh, you would have had Obama supporters waking up being shocked that anybody could have voted for, for Mitt Romney. And you see that in the voting patterns in these counties, where people uh, tend to be around other people who think like them uh, politically. Um, and you really have this uh, you know, divide between the coast and the rest of the country, between your more urbanized areas and, and, and your rural areas. And that, that played out in this vote. But the nature of the American electorate has changed. It's changed permanently. And that's going to continue to have impacts on presidential politics, state politics, and local politics. But why is that? I, I think a lot of Republicans just assume that Obama was deeply unpopular. There was going to be this rise in rage against government and against this leftist president. And then Democrats were perceived to be kind of um, passive towards Obama the second time around. They had a lot of hope and change, but there wasn't all that much hope and change. And then he changed it to just forward, you know, kind of a bland slogan, if you will. Why didn't any of that really come in? Why was it just a regular kind of mechanical type of election? Just win those you know, states that you need to win. No, I, I think that it's clear that the president retained deep reservoirs of support with his core constituencies. And even though uh, he may not have in their mind lived up to the full promise of his campaign, um, I don't think they fully blamed him for the failures of his presidency. Um, and Failures of his presidency? No, listen, I mean, I, I don't think that they're even your most enthusiastic um, supporter of President Obama, you know, would not have written the story of the past four years, you know, necessarily, you know, in this way. Um, I, I think that the paralysis with the Congress, the inability to kind of tackle some of these really thorny issues, uh, it's a difficult transition from being a legislator to being an executive and, and um you know, learning all the personalities involved in that. So I, I definitely don't think that um, all those uh, markers were, were hit. Um, but the president inherited a very, very bad hand, and there's nothing, um, you know, infantile. It's not complaining to say that he inherited a bad hand. He inherited a bad hand. There are lots of structural issues um, which have been, uh, you know, a product of changes in our economy, changes in the federal budget, the growth of these entitlement programs. And they are bigger than the ability of any one person to handle. But I think that people trusted what was in President Obama's heart. I think at the end of the day, his core constituencies thought that he wanted to do the right thing for the country, that he's somebody who's trying to do the right thing for the country. And they were willing to stick with him. Uh, their loyalty um, did not ebb, even though he might not have lived up and been you know, the president that they, that they had dreamed of. But I think what you saw is that core Democratic constituencies um, accepted um, where the president stumbled, they celebrated where he succeeded, and they turned out in intense numbers um, to make sure that he remained in office. And, you know, th that was a pretty consistent uh, story. The fundamentals of this election didn't change much despite, despite all that money and, and all that back and forth. For, for an Obama supporter, what would be the singular achievement? What would be this most significant achievement of the first term? What is it that people were capitalizing on? I don't think that it's a presidency that was defined by 
that by a singular achievement, though I, I think that when you look at the, uh, the difficult economic times and some of the really complicated challenges that, that, that are facing um, the country, uh, you know, keeping the, uh, keeping the doors open um, is, is an achievement sometimes. Um, but, you know, in terms of the broad... Just keeping the lights on? Are we setting the bar that low? You know what? I'm, sometimes you are. Sometimes you are setting the bar that low. Um, I think if you look right now, what's this going is an on, opening you know, where you are on Long Washington. Island, you know, people on Long Island wouldn't think that keeping the lights on is setting the bar very low at all. It seems to be pretty <laughs> difficult out there for, um, for a lot of people. <laughs> keeping a large system functioning, operating um, in times of enormous stress, there is no playbook for that. And, and, and I'm not here to you know, critique the president's performance as much as I am to try to speak about how the core Democratic constituencies felt that the president was still on their side. And his message remained consistently directed to them. And, you know, you have to take another thing, and that is the extraordinary political skill of the Obama campaign, which built the best voter database in the world, which learned how to motivate its supporters and get them out to vote. And for those of us who have knocked on doors and worked precincts and worked the phones and know how hard it is to pull people out on Election Day, you know, I think that everybody needs to take their hat off to this uh, to this organizing operation. I also think that the Republican Party has real demographic challenges. Um, its numbers with young people are awful. Uh, it's, you, you cannot um, continue to lose Latinos, the fastest growing uh, portion uh, of our country, um, by 50 percentage points. The harsh anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, has to be, you know, shelved, uh, or Republicans are not going to be able to win national elections. So I think the Republican Party needs to have a, you know, a, a good and long conversation with itself, just like Democrats had to do in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan had cleaned their clock, um, and think about what it means to be a Republican in the 21st century and what that means to offer the American people. And, you know, though I'm a, I'm a Democrat, you know, we all have an interest in vibrant political parties, um, it, it would not be good for America, for the Republican Party, to just, you know, put its uh, tail between its legs and pack up and go home. Uh, we need accountability. We need the clash of ideas that comes from uh, robust political parties. So, you know, I hope my uh, friends on the Republican side of the aisle and, uh, you know, Michael, you're, you're among them, um, you know, think about what can be done to restructure that national Republican Party. You know, Governor Pataki did a fantastic job here in New York uh, in building a coalition in a very democratic state. So you need to really look at how to put those pieces together. And neither um, party here really ran a coalition campaign. Everybody was just trying to get their people out. And I just hope that Americans look at that map and, and see these divisions and begin to you know, reflect on our own political ideology and our political behavior. And so, Ryan, just in 2004, eight years ago, Karl Rove was talking about a permanent Republican majority. Is that dream over? finished? Is that something, is, aren't politics cyclical? Is this a, just, in, a, is in, just in a, the end of a cycle here, or the beginning in, of a cycle? Where, in a, where are we? In, in a healthy political society, there are no permanent majorities. There should always be a fluid majority. Uh, different groups of people, uh, different communities of interest organizing themselves together in a fluid coalition, because that's how you make sure that everybody's needs are addressed in society. If it's always the same majority putting itself together, a permanent majority, you know, that, that's certainly not healthy when you have a permanent minority in it. That's certainly not a principle that we've ever seen in American politics. We've never had permanent majorities. We've had fluid society. We've had opportunity in our politics, opportunity in our economy. And it's important to, uh, 
um, to preserve those things. But, you know, coalition politics, it, 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 that's what you need to win at the federal level. That's what you need to win in, in the very diverse states that we have out there. And, you know, the Republican Party has people in it uh, who are very good at putting together those coalitions. But those Republican primaries seem to be dominated by voters that, that make that a, a very challenging proposition. So is your claim that, that that's not good Mitt Romney was not, the best of the, was not the best of the candidates? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't presume to, to tell my colleagues on the other side who the, who the best of their candidates were. But I, I think Mitt Romney's a good How do you feel about man. his campaign? I think he's a good man. I watched those debates. I thought he did very well in the debates. He's certainly somebody who I think was up to the task of being the president of the United States and who understood the seriousness and gravity uh, of the office. Um, in the end, um, his opponent put together uh, the coalition for victory. But, you know, this is clearly a very, very accomplished man. And I think he carried the banner of the Republican Party with a great deal of dignity and integrity. So my, my you know, my hat's off to Mitt Romney. I think he was a, uh, he, uh, he's a good man who has a great love of country. Um, uh, Ryan, this good is, this pick is about, or this is about embedded political um, behavior, and it's very hard to change embedded political behavior. Uh, Paul Ryan, a good pick or a subpar pick? I'm sorry? Paul Ryan, as a VP pick, good, not so good, average? Um, it, 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 it doesn't turn out to have done very much. Um, it didn't change the narrative at all, um, but clearly Governor Romney believed that he uh, still had that enthusiasm deficit with the very conservative Republicans who didn't trust him, and um, he decided to go with Ryan in order to shore up the base. You know, there was uh, reports out this week that the first choice is really Chris Christie, and that certainly would have been a very, very interesting campaign. Um, would have been a totally different uh, dynamic. Um, but at the end of the day, um, would it have made a difference? Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know that it would have. I think that you had um, fundamentals at work in the selection in terms of the demographics of the electorate. Um, which is the reason why uh, you had such, you know, consistent, all the predictors of this race, the numbers, all the predictions remain pretty consistent throughout. Even, even with the debate, a blip and Obama, uh, President Obama not really delivering such a strong performance, um, it, it didn't change the fundamentals of the electorate. So Obama enters the second term being the first president in quite some time who is who had a narrower margin of victory the second time than he did the first time. Did we learn anything from that? Well, it, it clearly means that there are people who uh, hired you um, who thought that it was time to fire you. And I don't think that's uh, very pleasant um, for anybody in public life to learn that there are people who had invested you with their hopes and dreams and, and, and now feel uh, you know, that you're not up to the task of continuing. And I expect that the president, with an eye on history, you know, is going to work uh, very, very hard um, uh, to try to speak to more of America. Um, and, you know, just as Mitt Romney's a patriot, you know, President Obama's a patriot, the man who has who is shouldered burdens of leadership and demonstrated leadership consistently uh, throughout his term in office, maybe not making decisions that everybody agrees with, but I think you have to honor uh, him and the office that he holds. And you've got you to gotta pray for the country that's facing very difficult choices. There's a huge wealth transfer that's going on from young folks to uh, uh, older folks to pay for um, these entitlement programs, it's not, it's not sustainable. Um, younger workers are not going to continue to pay into a system that they're never going to see anything out of. Um, so we need, to, we need to deal with that. We have, uh, you know, these structural issues um, in terms of the way the federal government does its business. And, and I, I commend President Obama for trying to be an innovator in areas like education. 
And I think you're going to see him continue to break with that kind of orthodoxy and get things done. I think you're going to see a very practical, achievement-oriented president in these next four years. Let's talk a little bit of the timeline of the last four years for a second. Let's get really political about it. Right? We had Obama swept into office, swept in with a Democratic surge. He had two years of Democrat majority. And then 2010 came around, the Tea Party. And there was a Republican surge. And then you had some special elections, like Bob Turner here in New York. Republicans are feeling, wow, they can really make inroads in different places. And then... 2012 comes along, and it's not just Mitt Romney losing, but the Republicans really, in a way, they didn't lose ground in the House, but they lost ground in the Senate. And they were expected at a certain point, like probably six months ago even, maybe six, eight months ago, to take a majority in the Senate. What, what happened to the Republicans politically? Well, you know, what, what, what happens is that, is that elections happen, and, and life happens, and voters change their mind, and, they, and they, uh, they flirt with one side, and they flirt with the other side, and they... Try the, you know, they, they try the Atkins diet and they try a different diet and they try Jenny Craig and they try Weight Watchers and they try everything till they, you know, see what, what, what suits them the best. So, so, so voters can be very, very fickle. Um, public opinion can, can change um, in an instant. So, you know, this is a very complicated time in our country. I think there's a lot of nervousness. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear. I'll tell you the real shock to me this year was that no credible third party candidacy emerged. Um, if I would have been having this conversation with you uh, a year ago, uh, I would have told you that these circumstances are ideal for a third-party uh, candidacy, a Ross Perot type of uh, operation. You have you know, disgruntled people. You have progressives who are dissatisfied with Obama. You have people who are dissatisfied with uh, the things in the Republican Party. You have that kind of Tea Party faction, uh, which isn't really so comfortable with the Republicans on a lot of issues. So I was really surprised uh, that you did not have uh, in this very complicated and, 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 and confusing political space, uh, a third, you know, a third-party alternative emerged. As you saw, you know, in 1980, which is also a time of tremendous anxiety with John Anderson, and then, you know, with uh, with Perot in '92, a time of tremendous uh, anxiety. Um, so I'm surprised. So what's preventing a guy like there. why didn't Mike Bloomberg run? I, I don't know. I, I you know I, I don't spend a lot of time with billionaires, so I don't have a lot of insight into how they think. Well, what kind of person, aside from um, a billionaire, can really run for president as an independent? Oh, it's, uh, that'd, that'd be very hard. That'd be very hard. So and when you're saying the third not, party, who's not, the person? Not, who's not, the, who's, not, who's, who's the guy who might have jumped in there? No, listen. I, I think a Bloomberg candidacy would have been fascinating. Absolutely well, fascinating absolutely for sure. Fascinating. But. Were you surprised that he jumped in to endorse Barack Obama with three days left with that, you know, very meaningful endorsement? Um, I'm, 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 I'm not surprised. Uh, I, I think uh, number number one, um, you know, you, you're not mayor of New York City unless you've developed some pretty good political sense, and I think he sensed that Obama was uh, President Obama was indeed uh, going to be uh, reelected. And and number two, and I think this is true for for, for a lot of voters, and, and and particularly those those um white voters that did stick with Obama, um, which was the, the social and cultural disconnect they feel. Um, looking at, you know, you look at that Republican convention on television, you know, wall to wall, it was a, you, you know, a very, very homogeneous uh, kind of crowd. Um, when you talk about the, uh, the, the angry white men issues, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, you know uh, gay, gay rights issues, and, you know, for, for those folks who are kind of in the middle, um, you know, politically, they're not interested in, in fighting a culture war, and I think some of them just feel 
that the Republican Party is just a little bit too conservative for them. And even folks who disagreed with President Obama's economic stewardship, um, I think folks looking at a president who's definitely going to have Supreme Court appointments and all that, um, just did not want um, to move the needle on social issues rightward in this country. There just was not an appetite for that. And I think that prevented, I think that gave Romney really a ceiling, um, particularly with, uh, with, with younger voters, um, where, where, you know, Mike Murphy, the great Republican strategist, was on TV talking about this last night and getting more in, in, in sync with the culture. And you look at the, uh, the referenda that passed on uh, marijuana legalization, uh, you look at what happened with some of the uh, marriage equality amendments, and you look at how that's playing with the younger part of the electorate, there's a real divide on some of these personal freedom issues. And Republicans are in a bit of a pinch and a conflict between their more libertarian members who are kind of hands-off on all this stuff and the evangelical wing, which is looking for a stronger government uh, voice on values. And so that's a debate that I think is going to play out in the Republican Party with much greater intensity going into the next few years. Let's get a little bit more local. You are a New York stater, as am I, and there was a perception that there were going to be a handful, maybe half dozen, maybe more, probably a half dozen seats in Congress up for grabs in New York State. That was going to be big battlegrounds, but it didn't really work out that way. Some of the some of the really close and closely watched races that were perceived to be going to be changing hands didn't end up changing hands. Um, anything surprise you with that? You know, the Bishop and Altula Rays, Grimm and Murphy, Hayworth um, and Maloney. I'll tell you, I, I, I was surprised by the resilience of Louise Slaughter upstate. Okay, I was going to get to that one. You didn't let me uh, finish. I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. Well, I was surprised by the resilience of Louis Slaughter upstate. You know, Maggie Brooks, a dynamic Republican woman, a successful, talented chief executive. Um, you know, uh, Congresswoman Slaughter, who's been in office for really, uh, really a long time. And you know, you, you you worry after a certain period of time. You know, she had some health issues. She's an older woman. Um, you know, has, has somebody worn out the welcome with with, with, with the electorate? Um, and I think what what you really see here is, is two things. Number one, um. Despite the upheaval you've had in Congress and in state legislators, and it's made it easier for incumbents to be voted out of office, um, people often stick with the name they know. Um, and people feel safe that way. Um, and yet when you have these name brands in politics, you know, they're very, they're very hard to dislodge. Uh, Congressman, uh, Congressman Grimm worked his district really, really hard, uh, as, did, as did Congressman Bishop. You know, they, they, they had close elections two years ago. Uh, they knew what was at stake, um, and that kind of shoe leather in the district matters. People uh, like to see their member of Congress and those members of Congress that remain very, very visible in their district and in touch with people, you know, tend to get reelected. Congressman uh, Bishop, in particular, was helped by you know a, a kind of a Democratic um, underlying uh, vote vote there. I thought that that race was going to be a little bit uh, um, tighter than it was, but I, I just don't. The Republican brand this year. Um, suffered a bit. The brand suffered a bit. The, the Republican narrative, even when uh, Governor Romney began to a little bit more moderate at the end, particularly talk about a state like New York. You know, New York is a very, is, is a very very moderate, uh, very moderate left state. So it's tough for Republicans in New York to swim against the national narrative without a prominent Republican in New York, like a George Pataki. Um, there's no reason for voters in New York to believe that New York Republicans are any different than national Republicans, and national Republicans just aren't very popular with New York voters. 
Do you see such a Republican emerging in New York? It's kind of hard to see right now. You know what? It, it, it's always hard to see, and then something emerges, and everybody claims that they're the ones who saw it coming. So, you know, I, I've been at this long enough to know that nothing surprises you. Uh, nothing can surprise you in this business. Candidates emerge. Uh, people attract the following. Uh, the wind changes direction seven times in the course of a campaign. Um, if everything could be modeled and predicted precisely, oh, you know, why bother having elections at all? Um, but, you know, the voters listen. They pay attention. They change their minds. Uh, they switch. Um, you know, not most voters. Mo- you know, you have a lot of voters who have that party allegiance, but you have those voters who move their minds around in the middle of those elections. And when you have presidential elections in which you have a much larger number of people voting, the Democratic enrollment edge in New York is just going to, you know, that, that, that's worth those extra two, three, four points on Election Day. It just gives every Democrat running a boost. They just get a boost from the underlying enrollment numbers. You have a more Democratic electorate. So what about the race in your backyard? Nan Hayworth, unseated by Sean Patrick Maloney, a Spitzer administration alumnus, a uh, guy who was really seems to have you know, been from New York City and then came to run in the Hudson Valley. And he was quite behind, I think it was as much as 10 points behind in a poll uh, previously, and then uh, emerges to be a victor, and it wasn't even that close. Well, you know, we've seen enormous changes in the mid and upper Hudson Valley, um, where Democrats used to have a very hard time getting elected. We've seen a huge Democratic resurgence in, I mean, Ulster County, uh, the uh, uh, new Democratic Ulster County executive there, uh, Democratic organizations um, in, in the mid-Hudson are, are doing fantastic, real good political operations in cities like Kingston. So, you know, you really have a, um, strong Democratic organizations uh, that are going on there. And, um, you know, Congresswoman, uh, you know, uh, Hayworth, who, 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 who is uh, very nice, a very nice uh, woman, um, and, uh, I, but I think she had a hard time figuring out how to position herself with her constituents when she got in Congress. Was she going to be a Tea Party person? Was she going to be a kind of more moderate New York kind of Republican? And when you have these two-year House terms, you don't have a lot of time um, to make those decisions. And, and, and I don't think that she ever settled on a narrative, and that prevented her from being a little bit more defined to her constituents. And Sean Patrick Maloney, who, who, who I know, he's a friend of mine, uh, very, very smart, very, very hardworking. He was able to put together money early, uh, get through that primary, and, um, you know, just drive away through work ethic through that, you know, uh, through that um, election. I think that uh, a lot of that is really a reflection on the changes that you've seen uh, in the voter enrollment numbers in the Hudson Valley. Uh, it's, it's become a much more Democratic part um, of, the, of the state than it used to be. Who won the vote in Curious Y'all? Uh, the, the, the vote in Curious Yol is always won by the voters of Curious Yol. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't um, del- delved, into, delved into the numbers there. Um, but, you know, well, usually you know, one side is the one that claims to have delivered the election for the winner. Um, well, it's always good to have your bets covered. Um, but, you know, when you have, in communities like Curious Yol, which are, which are, you know, highly politically motivated, uh, highly engaged in the delivery of, of, of social services. You know, they, they, take, they take this stuff seriously. But the practical people, they, they'll work with whoever is, uh, obviously, whoever is, is, you know, the winner, and, and that's appropriate. But, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney is going to be a terrific member of Congress. Um, I, I think you will see him uh, with a very high profile in the delegation. Um, I think that you will, um, I don't know if he's going to be a liberal bomb thrower like, uh, like uh, Anthony Weiner was, 
Um, but I certainly think you're going to hear a lot from Sean Patrick Maloney. I think he's going to have a lot to say, and I think he's got a very, very bright future in politics in this state. So this will segue to the Jewish vote uh, as we uh, close out this, uh, this segment. Uh, the Republicans spent millions of dollars courting the Jewish community, and I think exit polls gave it like a eight, maybe seven, eight-point swing uh, or uh, decrease for the president to the Jewish vote. Does, does, did that all that money matter? Is that what it was? Uh, you know, there are all these... Jews are trying to convert to Republicans. Well, what? I mean, listen, you know, to, to, to diminish the president's, uh, you know, uh, vote with a particular demographic, in this case Jewish voters, by 10%, certainly takes a lot of effort. The money certainly uh, played, played a role in that. Um, but I don't know that that was really the best use of, 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 Republican, of Republican money um, to go try to change uh, Jewish voting behavior. You know, th- though I will say this, which is just as I was discussing uh, earlier, Michael, with you about the problem that Republicans are having um, with, uh, with Latino voters, with, with younger voters. Um, Orthodox Jews in the Democratic Party, um, they're, re- they're really not on the same page anymore. You know, here in, in Muncie, uh, you see in Brooklyn, district after district, the, you know, the Republican line outpolling the Democratic line. You know, we, we, you, you have uh, a really strong and growing identification in the Orthodox Jewish community um, for Republican candidates. Whether that turns out to be good or bad for the community, you know, I, I think that that, that story... Um, remains to be uh, remains to be written, but you've seen a, a serious change in Orthodox Jewish voting behavior, um, and you know that that is going. To, it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to play out in uh, in New York State politics going forward. And what about beyond that? Is is the is the Republican Party making inroads outside the Orthodox community? You're a Jewish, Demo- Orthodox Democrat. Uh, mm-hmm. From a lo- largely Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, enclave. Mm-hmm. So, but beyond that, there are uh, non-Orthodox Jews in your midst, and certainly uh, amongst colleagues. Uh, where I don't see tremendous growth necessarily in Orthodox, uh, or I'm sorry, Jewish Republican elected officials. In fact, we just lost one in the New York State Senate. Yeah, no, no, and 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 that's and that's and that's unfortunate. Well, potentially. Uh, yeah, well, you know, listen, um, you know, uh, you're, talking, you're talking about Senator Saland. Correct. You know, and, and, and I just have to, you know, Steve, Steve Saland uh, is a mensch, if I, if I ever met one, a, a really good and decent man, a dignified and thoughtful senator, um, and uh, somebody who really made a great contribution to public service in the state. Uh, I enjoyed uh, working with him when I served in the state legislature, and I, I watched that race with, uh, you know, with, with great interest. But there, you know, he was done in, the senator, um, by a uh, conservative party candidate who hammered at him because of his vote on, on marriage equality, and there are Republicans who just weren't willing to vote for, uh, for Senator Saland. So, you know, it, it is, these are difficult, difficult coalitions sometimes to stitch together. And in these presidential election years, when you really don't know exactly what the electorate is going to look like and who's going to show up and who's not, you know, it, it's, it's even very talented political operators. There, you have a hard time modeling your, 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 your turnout in a year like this. So that brings us to the New York State Senate. Final question for you. Who will control the New York State Senate in the coming session? Uh, the answer to that is Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo the governor, he's going to take a demotion to State Senate? How does that work? No, but, but I think that whatever the balance of power winds up being in the Senate, uh, I believe it's going to be uh, with uh, the governor's blessing. 
Okay, so is that a punt on the real question? Um, it, 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 it's not a punt. I, I don't think anybody knows exactly how it's going to, 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 to stitch out there. You may have Democrats in the, in the, uh, in the Senate who decide um, that they can have more uh, leverage by joining up uh, with Senator Klein's group in the Independent Democratic Conference. I believe that that Independent Democratic Conference is going to hold and stay strong and, and, and play a role. Um, I believe that, you know, um, Senator Klein and his colleagues are going to play, including our own senator here in Rockland, Senator Carlucci, are going to play absolutely critical roles uh, in the leadership uh, of the Senate. And it will be interesting to see, you know, uh, how, how those numbers uh, play around. But, you know, you, we continue to have a governor with sky-high approval ratings, um, with significant political capital, significant political leverage, going into his re-election in a very, very uh, strong position financially, uh, politically. Um, I think uh, people have been impressed with the governor that we've seen, uh, with the natural disaster that we've been dealing with. This is somebody who's in charge. This is a governor who understands government. This is a governor you think people in Long Island feel that way? I'm sorry? You think people in Long Island still feel that way after 10 days in the dark? Um, I, I think that they see a, a governor who uh, is determined um, to, get things, to get things going. And, uh, you know, the governor's own house doesn't have power. So, I mean, you, you have had a total and absolute failure of the entire utility system in this country. There are not enough utility crews. There are not enough people in this state uh, who have this kind of uh, uh, expertise and knowledge that are, being, that are being mobilized. And the entire system needs to be rethought because we are so electricity dependent today. You know, you think about people in a panic that they can't use a device that didn't even exist 10 years ago. Um, but our infrastructure has not kept up with our society and we need to build an infrastructure which addresses, you know, the needs of people in the year 2012. We have a 1950s and 1960s power grid, and it, it doesn't work anymore. It's totally vulnerable. It's shot. It needs to be rebuilt. And I think you're going to see a huge effort out of uh, the Cuomo administration in uh, revamping New York's infrastructure from top to bottom, and I think it's a good thing. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for this astute political analysis and other commentary, I should add. And uh, uh, we look I forward to having you again on the get, show. Get, I'll get beat up in shoulder shoppers for my nice comments about the president, but it, it's always nice to be able to talk to you, Michael. Well, you know, wear sunglasses afterward. <laughs> Good talking to you. Thank you very much. That was Ryan Carbon, former Assemblyman, Hudson County, uh, sorry, Hudson Valley, Rockland County power broker, and uh, prominent Democrat and political commentator, lobbyist, lawyer, strategist, and he has been with us sharing astute observations from November 6th. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan. We are here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we are ready for our second guest. He's Richard Altaby, a educator, uh, armchair politician, and leader in the Frockway Jewish community and beyond. And he is also suffering from the blackout. And I thought that it would be fantastic, number one, to get his political insight with regard to some of the races that we just had on November 6th, but also perhaps to talk a little bit on what he sees as a longtime observer of government and participant and some of the failures that are going on as we enter 10 nights of darkness in the Rockaways. Richard, thank you for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Michael. And just to correct you, I think we're entering our 12th day of darkness. I can't. I never was good at counting, so I, I skipped that class. <laughs> it's not too pretty out here, I must tell you. And and though I'm a big fan of Ryan Carbon, I think he's a great person, and he was a great legislator. I think he has it all wrong on his apology for the governor. 
um, because the governor's let us down, the mayor has let us down, the Nassau County Executive has let us down, life has let us down, we're sitting in the dark, we're living in a way that nobody should live in the 21st century, and we really don't see much of a response anywhere. So your cries for help are going unanswered. Well, How about, what about the perception that the Jewish community is able to move mountains when they want to? The Jewish community has had an unbelievable response to this uh, disaster, and we have moved mountains. The, the amount of chesed that's going on, uh, things coming in from Brooklyn and Queens and beyond, and, and uh, people invited to Shabbos in Baltimore, and, 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 and things coming from all over the United States, from every from community, every Jewish community, to help us out. It's an incredible thing to watch. So we do move mountains, but we're unfortunately working alone and in the dark, literally. We're, we're without really any help from the elected officials. Uh, they seem to be powerless and, and, and unable to get things done, the simplest things. And it's not just about the power. It's very convenient that uh, we can all blame LIPA because they're not a government entity, and we certainly do have a lot to say about LIPA. But, but they are a government that, entity. There are a lot of other people who should be doing things, and they're not doing them. But, gov- but LIPA is a government entity. Uh, okay, but it's not directly controlled. I mean, maybe you should explain to the audience how LIPA runs, because we, we in Farakway have no clue. We'd like to understand that. So LIPA, the Long Island Power Authority, is a creation of the Cuomo and Pataki years, the first Cuomo, I should say. And uh, when they took over the Long Island Lighting Company, the much vilified Long Island Lighting Company, and decided to create a public power authority. So LIPA is, in fact, owned by the people by you and me, and all the other people who are in the dark. Well, I, I, I'd rather focus my energies on, on getting the elected officials to do certain things to just ease life for us, like the gas situation. Um, the gas situation, yes, initially came about because of the storm, and there's nothing you could do about it. But we're now 11, 12 days in, and we're still sitting on gas lines. And only us here in Long Island, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in the area immediately surrounding areas of the storm, we're sitting on lines and lines and lines. We're literally shipping gas in from Lakewood in canisters, and every day we're filling up our cars with canisters daily. Like, what kind of a life is that? And there really is no reason for it. Uh, the second New Jersey's Governor Christie created odd and even uh, filling days, the crisis ended. And we had to wait until today to hear from our mayor that he was going to copy that initiative and make out an even days. Why did he wait till today? Um, and it's not even starting until tomorrow. Uh, and why did the uh, Nassau County Executive not go along with that same idea? Where was the governor? Um, why are we sitting in the dark on major highways and streets in the Five Towns area where we can't even get people to put up generated lights? We had to wait till now when we finally had somebody come out today to say they're going to put out some lighting so that we can have red lights and there could be safety. I mean, tonight alone, just driving around, I almost got killed getting here, you know, to where I'm staying. Uh, why is that a way to live? It's the year 2012, and government should and could respond. And where was the security? Why should the uh, Farakwe community on its own have to create a patrol 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We shipped in uh, off-duty uh, policemen from Albany at a tremendous expense, and we thank uh, the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty, who really gave us a tremendous grant and lift last Shabbos in, in setting that up. Why do we have to live like that? Where is the support of our state? Why don't we have National Guard guarding our area? I mean, there's looting. Uh, there are people who are upset and hungry all up the peninsula, and, and uh, we're 12 days in. You know, I think even in Hurricane Katrina, they had a quicker response. It is shocking to be living in a third-world country all of a sudden. 
I don't think people who are living in Brooklyn, regular Brooklyn, where a life is normal, or parts of Kew Gardens and Kew Garden Hills where life is normal, could actually understand what we're living with unless they'd come here for a night or two and just see it. It is, uh, it is shocking. My parents had always told me about the gas lines in the 70s, in the early 70s, uh-huh. and uh, never thought I would come around to seeing that kind of okay. thing. Okay, I was around in the 1970s. When we had those I, I didn't want to tell anybody. I'll let you say that. Yeah, well, listen, you know. Um, I was around, I actually lived around the corner from a gas station in Long Beach, New York, growing up, and I remember those gas lines. And let me tell you something it was nothing compared to what you have now. Nothing. You know, 20 cars was a long line. We're talking lines that are literally miles long. I saw one line the other day stretching from Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn, in front of my yeshiva, Shari uh, Tara, going all the way back to Ocean Avenue. It's an eight block line. That's insane. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm a little bit speechless. I keep hearing about people who are going and uh, spending three, four, five hours in line. My I, solution is just not to go anywhere. Right. The solution is to stay. Listen, we have people who are missing work because they can't get to work. Um, so that's adding insult to injury. We're, we're sitting here without power, and that's the fault of a, an electric company that, that hasn't updated its power grid for all the years, like, like Ryan Carbon just said. I understand that. But if we had gasoline, it would be a lot much easier to deal. You know, people are going out and purchasing generators so they can live in their homes, and gasoline is in such short supply, it's almost impossible to get the gasoline nightly for your generator. And then we have beautiful organizations that are giving out gasoline, but if you don't own a gas can, then you can't get your gas can filled. Well, go try to buy a gas can someplace. Almost impossible. Um, this is an insanity uh, time period we're living through. It's insane. And where's the government helping us? They've really been absent, and it. it's, uh, it's really so. Have you reached out to your Have you reached out to your local elected officials, and what is it they tell you? Well, we of course are reaching out to our local elected officials, but you see, the devastation to our area is so uh, tremendous that. A person like uh, Phil Goldfeder, who is our wonderful assemblyman from a local area, is really busy 24 hours a day just helping people in his district. Um, and although he's, you know, made his arguments up the chain to the top, I don't think he has the, the time and wherewithal to really make a strong case, uh, you know, as it should be. And, and really, I don't think he's really gotten the support from the higher-up elected officials as they should. Where's the governor? Where's the mayor? Uh, the mayor ignored the Rockaways. The mayor has always ignored the Rockaways. It's insane. Well, talk about that for a second. The mayor has always ignored the Rockaways. Is, it, is that just specifically this mayor or all mayors? Well, it's always been true that the Rockaways were an ignored part of New York City, just as Staten Island is an ignored part of New York City. It's just off the radar. They don't come to visit. They don't, uh, they're not involved. Uh, they don't understand the local uh, realities on the ground. Uh, even their evacuation plans, although they're well-touted in the media as being amazing and wonderful. Let me just tell you, on Sunday night when they were evacuating the, the peninsula and they were trying to get people out of the housing projects, I heard one report that at one point they had two buses to uh, take out uh, four buildings of thousands of people, two buses, uh, until, you know, until the, ele- the local electors complained and then we got the additional buses. I mean... The plans that they have in the city don't reflect what's really on the ground in the Rockaways, and I think there's a, that disconnect has to be fixed. How is that that in 2012, with the advanced communications and the advanced, all the advanced everything technology that we have, how can this type of thing happen? That the that a neighborhood can just suffer essentially 
it, for an interminable, interminable amount of time. Uh, I, it would seem to me that there was no real effort made to enhance the communications even after Hurricane Irene. Let's talk about basics, like when that, the mayor made his evacuation order for Zone A on that Sunday. Uh, we got in touch with our local precinct, the 101 in Farakway, and by the way, they've been really wonderful and helpful uh, to us and tremendously cooperative. Uh, when we went to them and said, what's the plan? They said, we haven't been told yet. So the mayor made an announcement to the media to evacuate Zone A without informing his own local uh, people to put a pin in place to get us out of here. Um, I, don't you think there's something wrong with that, Michael? I, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's any way to answer that. I'm, I'm still flabbergasted by the suggestion. <laughs> well, Welcome to who was uh, supposed to who was supposed well. to evacuate? Is that is that why so many people didn't evacuate? In fact, well, it, it, there's two parts about the non-evacuation. One is that there's a uh, mentality in the Rockaways that you stick it out and you don't leave. Uh, we have a lot of firefighters and and police who live in the peninsula, up the peninsula, and they feel that they have the ability to ride out any storm. So, in reality, um, they have to understand uh, in the uh, New York City Central, whoever makes these decisions, that most people will not leave. Okay, but whoever could have left, let's say from the uh, areas where the housing projects are, uh, there's, those people certainly would have left and could have left, but there was no real plan in place to get them to leave. And then I'm going to tell you one other thing which will shock you, uh, because I had a personal incident in my own neighborhood. We had a uh, flood, in, we had tremendous flooding in the area where I live. I live near Tag, and the, the flood waters came up about 12 feet. How many blocks from the ocean water. is that, Richard? Hmm? How many blocks from the ocean? Just give the audience an okay. idea about how far yeah, from the ocean. Academy for Girls is a uh, girls' school, Basiaco, that's about, I would say, six blocks from the ocean and about a quarter of a mile, half a mile away from the ocean. And uh, we often get some minimal flooding, even in you know, large rainstorms, nor'easters and the like, uh, but never like this. Uh, at the height of the storm, uh, the storm surge came up, and there was literally an ocean raging on my block where the mailboxes were covered, the stop signs were covered, Cars in the street were fully submerged, fully submerged. The water was up to the first floor, and, and, and several inches of water came into my first floor of my house. And those with basements uh, on the block over had their basements completely ruined and businesses destroyed. It was a devastation beyond anything we've ever seen in our lives, and it was extremely scary. Um, we evacuated my house to the second floor. I got a call at 11 o'clock that night that my uh, elderly neighbor was stuck in his house. He only has a first floor. He rents. He's on a first-floor apartment. The water was coming up several feet. He was in a, in a, in a, on a couch, huddled in blankets, freezing cold, sick, unable to walk, unable to move, and he was crying out for help. So we called the authorities and we said, okay, um, we have a guy stuck in the house, so bring over a boat and get him out. I mean, we've seen pictures of, of people being rescued in boats in, in storms such as this, and I was told there are no boats. Now, we're in Zone A in the Rockaways. There were no boats? It's like the Titanic. There were no boats. Thank God the water never got high enough and the, and the and gentleman survived. And thank God Barclay Bender from Achiezer was able to go out in high boots when the water receded around 1 o'clock in the morning to physically take him out. But there was nobody available to respond to that call because there were no boats in the Rockaways. Hey, absolutely incredible. So what has life like been? What has life been like? in the last 10 days, last 12 days for you? It, it's an unbelievable disconnect because once I get to work in Brooklyn, life is normal, but you go home at night and you uh, enter a world of pitch blackness. There is no cell phone coverage. There's no landline in the house because none of us have uh, 
plug-in landlines like we used to have in the 60s and 70s are landlines are connected to the electricity. There's obviously uh, no ability to do laundry. Uh, there's no ability to drive anywhere. Um, you just sit in your house cold. Uh, there's no heat. Uh, people are buying generators, even with a generator, you get a few lights on and maybe you get your heat connected. It's, it's just not in existence. Uh, everything is in a disarray. All the homes are a wreck. They're a mess. Uh, thank God, thank God the Jewish community banded together and created some uh, respite centers in several of the shuls in the area with the cooperation of organizations like Achiez or JCC or the Rockway Peninsula, the help of Med Council, uh, the Young Israel Bayswater and the Bayswater Jewish community has been incredible and they have an unbelievable Rockway Patrol that's kept us all safe. And if without that, I think we would have all gone insane a long time ago. But we're going on, let's say, four hours of sleep a night. Um, we're trying our best to keep up the spirits. Tonight in the White Shul, for instance, Congregation Knesset Israel, uh, the rabbi brought in a magician to entertain the children. Children have been without school for days. We're talking about in certain schools they haven't had school in two weeks. Uh, it's, it's a situation that's quickly, quickly deteriorating out of control. How, how do you introduce this to people who aren't aware? What, what is it that you tell them? Do they have to see it to believe it? They, first of all, you have to see it to believe it. Um, and even if you see it, and a picture, you can't really understand it. You just can't understand it. I, in, in, at Shari Torah, I was talking about it with my students, and we had heard that the community of Bell Harbor was particularly hard hit. So I took a group of my seniors out to the community of Bell Harbor, and there was a call to uh, clean out the Obsetic Shul, which was devastated on the uh, basement where they have a base mattress down there. And, and we did some shameless collection in houses, and we did shameless collection in, in the shul. And those children were changed for the rest of their lives. They saw something they would never believe. And I described it. I showed pictures of it. But unless you see it, you just can't believe it. Wow. So in this time, in the last couple of days, they managed to hold an election. Yeah. Didn't they? How, in a third world type of setting, uh, how, how did they conduct an election? It was really otherworldly. Um, we got notice that they moved. All of the voting in Farakway to a central polling place at Brian Piccolo Junior High School, IS-53, which is not located in the community. Um, and uh, the streets, are, it's, it's not a safe neighborhood. The streets there are completely pitch black. They had one generator light in front of the building, but you, it was so crowded over there, you had to park blocks away and walk in the pitch blackness. Uh, to walk into a voting uh, gym that you had literally hundreds of people standing online different lines. Uh, nobody knew uh, informationally which district they should go to because, as you know, there was redistricting, so all the voting districts have changed since uh, 2010 when most people voted last. So people were confused. They didn't know where they were going. Um, the, the experience was miserable, and they were not in their regular polling place. It was a disaster. So this is a presidential year. I imagine the turnout was pretty high. Well, not for our community. And usually in a, in a presidential year, our community, without any work on our part, with zero work, in a presidential election year, I've seen numbers 2,500, 2,700, just in Farakway without Bayswater, 2,500, 2,700 votes. Ask me how many Jews went to vote in Farakway this year. How many? 900. Wow. Wow. Now, in the presidential election, a difference of 1,800 votes is not going to change anything. So, you know, and also it's constitutionally set that the presidential election is on a certain date, and obviously they can't make a difference between hard-hit areas and regular areas. So let's, we, we can easily forgive the fact that that presidential election went on as if nothing had happened. But how can you run a local election for a local elected official 
when the demographics are such that the area that was hard hit impacts one of the people running and the other person who doesn't have voting support in that, demogra- in that area that was hard hit is allowed to run. So that instead of being a, a very tight 50-50 election that had been predicted, the person wins with almost a two-to-one advantage. How's that even reasonably fair in 2012? And the answer is? <laughs> the answer is, to me, that there was an effort made to suppress the Republican turnout. They anticipated our areas to be Republican. I mean, Breezy Point is a Republican area. That's where Bob Turner lives. And uh, Bell Harbor was certainly going to vote Republican in this election. They knew that Farrakhan was going to vote Republican in this election. And, obvious, and, and by moving the voting place to an area which is outside of our neighborhood, is clear evidence to me that uh, there was an effort made to disenfranchise the Republican vote. Wow, that's some pretty uh, significant charges there. Well, you know, Who, the guilty party? you did have a discussion just before talking about how the uh, control of the state Senate is up for grabs, and, and uh, obviously every uh, Democrat in, in state Senate has the potential to make the state Senate go Democratic as opposed to Republican. So how convenient is it for somebody up above to make a decision to make it more difficult for the Republican voters to vote? Incredible. So... You've been without power, you've been without police, you've been without really any type of governmental services, and in fact, they really kind of took away the right to vote for yeah. quite a few uh, yeah, people. Yeah, this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. We are, I would be happy and willing to testify that the Jewish vote in this area was uh, suppressed. We are disenfranchised, and in my opinion, it's adding insult to injury. How much wow. more can so, we suffer? Uh, we are, our, our ability to express ourselves in terms of who we supported and who we wanted to have as our state senator was directly suppressed by the Democrats up in Albany. Wow, incredible. So very quickly, uh, looking to 2013, you as a political activist, and we, we have a very short amount of time, who do you like in the city elections? Well, uh, in Farakwe, we may be running one of our own as a city councilman because we have a special election happening uh, probably in March as uh, our city councilman, James Sanders Jr., became a state senator in this election cycle. And uh, with five or six people running, none of, them, uh, none of the people running are, are people that we would really support. We have an opportunity in a tight race to uh, use our collective political power and put in somebody on our own for a few months. You know, just to see that, uh, just let people know that we're still here, even though we're uh, ravaged by hurricane. I mean, they're not going to be able to suppress us forever. Right. <laughs> well, I guess there's no lack of effort, though. No. No, no lack of effort. Um, and, that's an, and then the mayoral race is going to be certainly very, very interesting. And uh, we really haven't even thought about who we'd even begin to support. But uh, as usual, what happens in our neighborhood is the political candidates make an effort to come out and visit us. Uh, we've had inquiries from John Liu, Bill Thompson, um, uh, Bill de Blasio came out to visit the, our operation in Bayswater, uh, you know, to show his face. So obviously the candidates are getting ready, and they're looking to uh, impress us. And we'll interview all of them, as we always do, give everybody a fair shot, and we'll make a choice that best reflects our interests and needs, as we always do. But that's interesting, because you said you've been disenfranchised by the Democrats, and now you're talking about all these people are Democrats. Wow. Let's understand that most of the people in Farakwe are still registered Democrats, even though, as Ryan said before, the Orthodox community is increasingly thinking and feeling Republican. Um, uh, so therefore, there's first going to be a Democratic primary for the mayoral election, and obviously every Democrat 
whether they're going to ultimately support that Democrat in the end or not, has to be involved in that process so that we can select the best Democrat of the crew. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been Richard Altaby on Spin Class with Michael Fragan. We are out of time. A very fascinating discussion. And good luck. And hopefully the darkness will end very, very soon. Thank you very much for joining us. And next week, November 15th, we look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye. Thank you.